Welcome to episode 41 of Super Entertainment Presents the Television Crossover Universe on the Grand Guignol Network, coming to you live from Castle Wolfenstein, hosted by the TVCU crew. The TVCU crew are a team of crossoverists who devote way too much time connecting the dots to official crossovers and Easter eggs in order to demonstrate a shared fictional universe that we call the Television Crossover Universe. And I want to welcome you to the second part of the 18th Wall Power Hour featuring Nicole Petit, author and series editor at 18th Wall Productions, who has graciously allowed a break from chronicling the adventures of the great and glorious Dragon Lord's secretary. Also, here is James Boychuk, CEO Dubois of 18th Wall Productions, and I'm M.H. Norris, author, among other things, at 18th Wall Productions. Now, this is the part of the show where we talk about our plugs. So, Nikki and James, feel free to pitch our listeners something you've written, edited, or, as Nicholas Briggs would say, something out there that's vibrating your molecules. So, what's going on, Nikki? Well, let's see. Um, I think I should plug one of our um, 18th Wall series, which is currently um, part of a larger bundle called the Weird Western Story Bundle, which you can find on storybundle.com slash weird. It's J. Patrick Allen's West of Pale, which is actually the um, first one in a series of Western horror and the second one is actually coming out fairly soon. I got it. I got the edits done, and I'm really looking forward to seeing that one come out as well, because I really, really enjoyed reading that one. Oh yes, it's always great to see Wild Bill show up. Yes. <laughs> All right, James, what are you going to plug for us today? First, I would like to congratulate you, MH, on reading the entire intro in one second less than a minute. That was an impressive feat of speed. Uh, yeah. Very impressive. I, I was trying to keep it slow, and then no, uh, nerves got me there. And I could hear you guys snickering, and I'm like, oh gosh, and that would actually make me go a little faster. Yes. <laughs> when do we not laugh at you, MH? Yes, this is what I deal with all the time. I mean, we are the nitric, nitrous oxide for making you read faster. Yeah. yeah. I, I saw the time. I was like, oh, that was so fast. I was impressed. Congratulations. I don't think anyone's ever going to read those five paragraphs faster. Thank you. I'm just sitting here turning an impressive shade of red at the moment, actually. Oh, what we would do to have a camera. Well, I would like to two things. First, I would like to plug that previous science abduction novel, which stars Professor Abraham Van Helsing, very much inspired by Peter Cushing's portrayal and Sherlock Holmes solving a case in Eastern Europe. Aaron Smith's The Cocoon of His Dreams, which, I mean, how can you say no to Peter Cushing? Yeah. Also, I would like to briefly plug, sticking with the Holmes vein, I would like to briefly plug the two most recent Big Finish Sherlock Holmes stories. It's impressive that really with so... How do I want to word this? It's impressive that Nicholas Briggs and Richard Earle are so quickly becoming my Holmes and Watson. And they're so, so close to the threshold of displacing Jeremy Brett and David Burke, which I never expected to happen. Though it's only partial, because now I just hear Jeremy Brett with Nick Briggs' voice, so... <laughs> Alright. So not complete, but getting there. 
And that is my plug. I mean, he does do a very nice Sherlock Holmes. Um, I've actually listened to All Consuming Fire, which is the crossover with Sherlock Holmes. Oh, yes. So, and so I was very impressed with his Holmes. I thought it was a lot of fun. So I actually will have to check those out and get some more of Briggs' Holmes. I love that episode. It's one of it's my favorites. Very unique and fun. So there, there is a plug we're all three going to give is All Consuming Fire. Now you have no excuse not to check it out, listeners. None at all. Alright, and before we go to break, what am I going to plug today? Um, let's take a moment to note, we're going to be in the middle of September, um, we're going to actually once again plug the Time Travel Nexus, because my goal is by the time this episode airs is to start having my series of fall TV previews out. I'm actually at still debating how I'm breaking this down by network, by show. I'm fairly certain the CW is going to get its own post with the Arrowverse. And once again, as I mentioned last week's episode, talking about how Supergirl's going to incorporate herself into this universe with these other three shows. Um, is she going to do time travel like The Flash and Legends of Tomorrow? Is Arrow going to join that party now that there's two shows, a third has the potential to do so? And that would be number four. Um, and discussing pros and cons and what's coming. Um, so there's my plug. So make sure to be keeping an eye in the month of September out on TimeTravelNexus.com for my fall TV preview and how you can catch time travel on TV this fall. And should I predict a 5 out of 5 for time traveling bong? Uh, we're not even going to start on that one again this episode. <laughs> no, no. There are some interesting new shows. Um, I was, when the um, results started coming out in the spring and I kept seeing new time travel shows. I was very surprised. I would have expected it last year more, with it being 2015 and Back to the Future coming, you know, now being fully in the past, I would have seen that. And I think that's a little bit of what influenced that, is um, October 21st, 2015, being so, you know, big on time travel, because everyone's watching Back to the Future and being like, oh, Marty McFly was here on this day. And I know I had a moment when I timed it to exactly when he would have been in the future, and it was fun, and... So I think that's partially what motivated it. That's my not-so-professional opinion on it. That but would I'm seem ex- likely. I'm excited to see what comes of it and to see if time travel is going to become the trend for at least the next couple of years. How excited are you for Doctor Who's return to TV? I am... You would throw me under the bus with this question, wouldn't you? Yes. I am excited to see what the Christmas special brings in December because I do know Stephen Moffat with all his flaws, does do very well with Christmas specials. Um, Husbands of River Song being one of the best episodes in a long time, in my opinion. So I'm excited to see what he does with this Christmas special and to see, because this could potentially be his last one, because I don't know if they've agreed on who's writing the Christmas special of 2017 yet. So to see what he does, um, pointing out Husbands of River Song, pointing out the one that was on Narnia um, with the kids and the hammock that developed a fall. Or the one that spoofed the Christmas Carol, because those were some of the best episodes in a while, and they were fun. So I am excited to see what he does here at Christmas. As for season 10, I am curious about this new companion and to see how she fits in with the 12th Doctor. So I am going to remain kind of... I'm going to see what he does with this last season, because this is Stephen Moffat saying goodbye and see what he does with that and how he comes back from how he left the show. Okay, and one last question on this front. Other than shows with the high marijuana content, which one are you looking forward to the least? To the least? Hmm. Um, actually, I don't know. Um, coming back, 
It might actually, uh I don't know, because a lot of them I'm remaining optimistic about, like, the Arrowverse, and, uh, of course, I am interested and curious about season 12 of Supernatural, because that goes in my department, because they have touched time travel several times. I'm curious about, um, gosh, my paradox, so least favorite that I'm looking forward to, I'm actually not sure. Um, Even with the new shows, they all seem intriguing. Um, there's a few not even time travel related I'm excited for that are coming out for their first seasons this year. I'm not sure if there's a least at this point. Okay. I'm not sure if there's even a most, to be honest. I'm I'm excited gotcha. for fall TV because I'm ready to plan my week around my TV shows again. I've missed it <laughs> these few months. No, it, it's a serious business, um, dear listeners. I will plan my entire week around what's on TV. And James has very much gotten used to this. I can't do this tonight. This show's on. And then one, one, one year I actually had it Monday through Friday. Actually, Sunday through Friday straight. I had a show on at least every night. It was, that was a fun year. Shall we cut to break? We shall cut to break. We'll be back with our special guest, Nicole Petit, after this break. Since her last appearance on the show, Nicole Petit has been incredibly busy. Two more of her collections have seen print after Avalon and Just Those Stories, and a number of the series she's edits ha- she edits have begun to release, including J. Patrick Allen's Dead West, with more from such authors as Wesley Julian, John Black, and M.H. Norris to follow in the coming months. Another collection, Spiritualists, I'm sorry, Speakeasies and Spiritualists, has just closed its submissions on the day we're recording, no less. All of this while she is writing more stories featuring Scarlet Chase, the protagonist from TVC favorite The Dragon Lord's Secretary. Even more is in the works. She's one of those phenomenally prolific author-editors, and it's always a pleasure to see more work from her. Nicole has taken some time from her incredibly packed schedule to talk to us. Hello, Nicole. Hey, how's it going? Great. So, since we had you on last time, your first collection from the Dragon Lord Library has won a nice little set of awards. Best Story, Best Cover, and Best Artist in the New Art, in the Pulp Arc New Pulp Awards. How does that feel? Oh, it's very nice. Uh, I just was so lucky to have so many talented, creative types who actually took a chance on something that I threw out there and went, Hey, you want to do something for me? And I'm so glad to see that it's turned out so well. And I'm so glad to see people like J. Patrick Allen actually moving on from being the, uh, that was his first story right there was in Dragon Lord's library. And now he's got his own series that I'm now editing and really excited to see more of. I, I'm going to actually cut in for half a second to note for J. Patrick Allen that if memory serves, that short story actually did win an award. Um, we actually got to meet up at the same award ceremony, and it was lots of fun. Um, but yes, it, it is fun. I have to agree with Nikki. Um, I know she feels so much more pride because she got to you know accept that story and release it. But it, it's come a long way, and you did carry home. So congratulations from me as well for all the awards you got. Thank you. Yeah. In fact, I believe he said something like, depending on how that story did was going to be if he ever did anything more with the concept. So I think you helped show him the proof of how much there was in that concept for the future. I'm so glad because it's one of my favorite um, series 
currently out um, anywhere. Um, and I don't say that despite the fact that I am heavily biased being, being the editor, but I really do mean it. Um, everything that I do accept is something that I just really, really loved reading. Yeah. Your most recent book is, excuse me, your most recent book is After Avalon, a collection of Arthurian tales with a rather unusual twist. Could you tell us a bit more about that twist and also your interest in the Arthurian legend in general? Um, I can start with when I got interested in the Arthurian lit, which was back when I read Going in the Green Knight when I was in high school. That story captivated me. And ever since then, I've learned, tried to learn everything I possibly could about the Arthurian legends and all of the literature that spawned from it. Um, and going so far as to one of my absolute last classes in university in my creative writing major was writing for video games. And when we were allowed... To do anything that we wanted, I did a video game based off of the questing beasts, the white stag, the titular questing beast herself, and Reynard the fox, which I actually got an award for, which was definitely entertaining to receive the award for in a room full of um, very literary fiction-oriented professors who then got to read a recommendation from my video games teacher talking about how well I had done um, converting the um, side-scrolling platformer genre and adding in um, the, the spirit of the quest itself and Arthurian legends. And the teacher set the uh, recommendation down, said, I don't know anything I just read, but it sure sounds impressive, shook my hand, and then gave me the award. That's oh. just a perfect picture of exactly what college is like. <laughs> Isn't it? That was my entire creative writing college career right there. Um, and around about the same time that I was working on that was when I got the idea for After Avalon. And if I remember correctly, as is... Um, true to most of my ideas for anthologies, I was just talking to you and out of the blue went, you know, I got a really good name for an anthology because I really love alliteration. So what can we do with a title for After Avalon? And you this went, that true. sounds great. Let's do something with it. And we decided to go with that. And it is exactly as it says on the title. It's stories of Arthurian literature that take place after Camlan and after Avalon. So we've got um, modern day. We've got uh, Victorian England in there. We have one of my favorite stories takes place during the London Blitz. Yes. And I so love who Arthur is in the 1940s. Oh, that was a really good one. Which There's I no one else he could fun. be. But it's perfect. Yes. Uh, that, that, that was fun. Um, I'm actually going to steal James Sander here for a second. But, Go for it. Uh, both of us agree that one of our favorite things about this particular book is this. The, he uses the word sheer variety, and I say they all have such a different feeling from each other. Um, like you said, there are so many different time periods represented. And when you were going on and saying, let's do this story... 
because after all, who doesn't love a good alliteration? Um, <laughs> were you hoping for this kind of variety or were you pleasantly surprised when submissions came in and you saw this variety showing up? I was very concerned that I would only get modern day because that seems to be the only time period that people tend to write Arthurian stories now if they're doing things. Uh, I was very, very concerned that I would only get that. And I was so pleasantly surprised at seeing just how many different um, time periods um, people actually decided to write in. Yeah, um, we're going to poke on that modern day because that one was, I, I know you were hoping for more, but that one was one of my favorites of the set was them looking for Merlin's tomb. And you need to pick up the book and read the story because it was Limitin a, by John Black. It was a lot of fun. also going to be another series uh, st- in the grand tradition of me finding authors that I love so much that I really want them to write more for me. That one will be actually expanded into its own lengthier story and continue on as a series. All right. You feel free. This is actually where I had a spot to make sure you got to plug that a little because when James told me that, yeah, that's a series, I was like, yes. But speaking of, it yes, that am- should be coming out in spring 2017, the first full length book in that series. Yes. It should be a lot of fun. Speaking of, um, I was wondering. Will we maybe see a series? Or are we going to get a sequel to the Mayhawk's daughter? Because that was another story that I felt like we could see more of those characters and more of that adventure. And I would love to see that happen. That's something I'd have to ask the author about um, directly. Yes, because I mean that story leaves you with so much ugly sobbing. It does. It does. But it was it was one of those. I literally sat down, messaged James. I was like, James, when's am I getting the sequel? <laughs> I love how your first message on it, James, this story's so long, and I don't hear anything else until the end, and it's, I need a sequel, James. <laughs> it was. I, I, once I got into it, though, I enjoyed it. Um, but I, I am very excited for the series by John Black to come out, and I look forward to coaxing you guys to give me an early look at it. But, and we will... We, have to talk with him because that was a fun idea and I really enjoyed that character so I'm excited to see what comes why don't you tell us why you enjoy the characters it does seem like something I would write um, and I do enjoy seeing people take um, and for very different reasons I guess at times I could see this is where Rizella could be in 20 years but she's not going to get a university job because she can't handle that she's a little bit too much of a free spirit but I love the idea of the oh we're going to look at this mythology but no I'm not going to let myself believe this but I want to, and I think this is, and I think this is what I think it is. And then she's tracing these clues, and you actually get to follow her around the globe as her following this um, adventure to find Merlin's tomb, and these pieces that come from bits of pieces of myth, and a lot of them I didn't recognize because I'm not nearly as familiar with the lore as you guys are. And just you get to follow the adventure and the setbacks, and then push us forward. And then we get there, and we discover it, and yeah, then it's like, well, what's next? Where are we going next? And I'm curious to see what's next for the, her. Yes, and it's sort of an intellectual Tomb Raider. It is a very intellectual Tomb Raider. Did but you she have also, any... Go for it. <laughs> that actually does get pointed out, um, that she um, ends up with like a words of treasure hunter and she's like you're not making a fortune at the expense of this um academic discovery uh, 
and it is very that intellectual that you know the knowledge and the academic significance comes before any chance of making a fortune off of finding something like Merlin's tomb. Yeah, you'd almost say it belongs in a museum. Yes. <laughs> if only you watched that movie to know what we're talking about. Yes. Literacy. Uncultured heathen. I, I am at times such an uncultured heathen, but I believe this is Nicole's interview. So, James, I believe you had a question for her. <laughs> um, that satisfied most of my questions on After Avalon. Do you have anything else to ask about this one, Mary Helen? Uh, no, we actually managed. We, you and I had a question. Both had the same question, um, and then I got mine asked as well. So I think we're ready to move on to another okay, fun one question. thing. I would like to note first. Remember one of the things you said to me, Nicole, was I would love to get something like Wayne and the Green Knight, but I just don't think we will. I do remember saying that. And then? And then we actually got one, and I was so, so excited. It made me so happy. Oh, that's a really good one. It is. And it is written like a medieval poem. In the same meter and style. In the same style, which was something I was absolutely shocked to find in my submissions. That was not something I anticipated at all. And I was so pleased to get it. I think I sent you all caps messages. Like, I'm so excited. You don't understand. We just got Gawain and the Green Knight Part 2. Yes, I love how that was on your impossible wish list that you mentioned at the beginning. Man, I'd love this. And then it happened. Now you can carry on to the next book, Mary Helen. All right. Um, also released since last time Nicole was here on the podcast are the Just So Stories. Um, I'm trying to go between the two of our notes and find a good way to intro this. Um, one thing I was wondering was... What kind of drew you in? Let's just start with this. What drew you in to curate a collection of Just So Stories? Um, go start there. Well, Just So Stories were some of the stories that I grew up on. And basically, um, some of the stories definitely made a writer of me. Uh, Rudyard Kipling, in general, is just one of my favorite writers. But there's something about his collection of myths and how things became just so that really, really appealed to me growing up. And I've always, always loved them. Um, Every time I go back to them, I just I find something new and I, I just fall in love all over again. So that was actually one of the very, very first things that was brought up when James suggested that I could start doing anthologies. I said, I would love to do a sequel to Just So, or a spiritual successor, I suppose, would be a better way to to term it, Um, because there's just nothing else quite like those stories, and I would love to see more of them. I, I'm actually kind of hoping you'll you'll do a second one because there are a lot of fun stories in this collection, including a couple of tales by Kipling himself. What made you choose those particular tales? They're ones that don't usually get published with the other with the group of them, um, and yes. because they're they're rarer, I really wanted to give more people a chance to see them, 
even people who love them just as much as I do probably um, haven't seen these ones. Yes. Um, in fact, just to cut in a bit, so far as we're aware, Kipling's introduction hasn't been ever reprinted with the rest of the Justice stories. It was just sitting alone in old Victorian magazines, but never appeared anywhere else, so far as I could find. Mm-hmm. Which is one of those very odd facts. And then one other thing, the second Kipling story at the end of the book, he wrote as a sort of sales advertisement for the American edition. Like, hey, you like my book? Well, actually, more than that, the taboo tale. The taboo tale, Mm. because with how copyright worked, you needed to not just publish your book in America to establish copyright, it needed to have a different text than the English version. So... Suddenly, when it was being printed in America in 1903, he had to write a new story about Taffy <laughs> to establish American copyright. Um, where did you guys even find that? Um, specifically, you, Nicole, where did you guys find the taboo tale? And um, I, it's probably a similar re- reason to why you put the Kipling ones in there at all, but why put that in there? That's a fun find. I believe it was James who found that one um, yes. while was... we were looking up um, the different stories and we were deciding we had always wanted to add one of them at least into there. And he had found it while yeah. we were searching. I stumbled into the taboo tale. And then from there, I stumbled into his introduction and it was just this beautiful pile of Kipling that no one knows about. Because I really enjoyed the taboo tale, and I was like, "Why is this not a thing normally?" Because I found Taffy to be fun, mm-hmm. and I kind of want more from her. Um, and that, yeah, you said these are not very common. That's surprising to me. Yes, very surprising. Um, this one actually does it have variety, um, particularly how Duck lost her voice because it has a slightly different feel to it than the other ones um but it still manages to do the same thing uh were you hoping for a story like that with a slightly different take on a traditional justice story or were you just like i really like this and so i'm gonna throw it in with it being slightly different um i wasn't actually sure what sort of stories i was going to get when i opened up this missions to be entirely honest i wasn't sure if i was going to get people who were going to try and copy kipling's style um talking to his best beloved or if i'd get something um more more closer or closer to uh the the author's um own voice um, when I saw that one, though, I was just enchanted because I really love uh, that is definitely that is the one where the, the father's talking to his daughter, right? Yes. Yeah, so it's Jenny and her dad. Yeah. And I remember reading it and going, this feels a lot like how Kipling talks to you when he writes uh, when when you're reading the story and when he wrote those stories that's what it it's like it's like having your dad tell you uh explain to you why the world is working like it is so yeah the moment i read that one i just kind of fell in love with it i didn't i hadn't anticipated it but it just fit so well very true yes it's a fun collection and i do suggest you get it um but a lot of things Nicole puts out are fun and you don't expect to find some of the stuff you find in it. And so make sure you guys pick up both um, Just So Stories and After Avalon, especially to get ready for that series. 
because I'm very excited for it. Sorry, I'm yes. I'm done plugging that. I think for the day, we'll see. You think? Somehow I've still got I don't time. So. Yes. Um, I don't really have a specific question about just so stories. I would more like to point out. I think the cover is one of the best we've ever had, and that's all down to Eli's graphics talent at adapting yes. the original illustrations. That's a gorgeous cover. So now, you, everyone listening, you have more reason to go to our website, 18thwall.com. Click on that thumbnail and see it. And if it happens to slip into your cart while you're there, well, we're not going to argue. No, not at all. You know, after Avalon can slip in there, too. Just boop, pop of them, both of them. And you guys can also get the award-winning Dragon Lords Library. Yes. Let's briefly cover that while we're here. What do, you, do you have any thoughts now that we're a few months in from the Dragon Lords Library's release? I'm surprised at um, how much, how, um, let's see, how well it's taken off, actually. I, I suppose I shouldn't be, but I definitely didn't expect my first attempt at curating an anthology to gain as much ground as it did. Um, one of my favorite things is actually hearing people tell me that they got it for their kids because their kids love dragons and that they really, really enjoyed reading all about the drag- the stories that the Dragon Lord has in his library. Um, yes. I actually have an aunt who is blind, so when uh, she heard that I had made a uh, the Dragon Lord's library and then the Dragon Lord's secretary, um, she really, really wanted to uh, read them. So I ended up making, uh, cobbling together through uh, a recording program that I downloaded offline online um, a bit of an audiobook version of uh, the stories and that was that was really fun to do yes uh, you kind of now actually want that file especially if you had a dragon lord secretary because I kind I of need you doing Scarlet um, <laughs> <laughs> oh I didn't do voices very well oh. in that one uh, it's embarrassing really but <laughs> I'm sure I could find them for you but yeah, it's definitely, um, I think the favorite thing that I've heard is just how many people got it for their kids. Yes. Um, that is definitely what I wanted. I want more um, young readers being excited about um, the subject matter and getting to getting stories that they like. Yes. That was the hardest thing, I think, for me as a kid was getting stories I really, really enjoyed. Yeah, and so many collections around a theme are just lazily cobbled together, and there's not much... I like this story, so it goes here. It's more, that fits, sure. Yes. Now, because today is the day it is, and submissions only just closed for speakeasies and spiritualists, could you tell us a bit about that anthology and the amazing woman who inspired it? I can definitely do that. Um, 
the idea for that one, it was not actually the first idea for this um, the series that I've been planning. The first idea I had, which hasn't opened submissions yet, which probably will later, was Sock Ops and Seances, which is another one of those times where I sat down and out of the blue went, hey, I have a title with alliteration in it. Would you like <laughs> yes. to do an anthology? Yes. And I decided I really wanted an, an anthology that was all about supernatural stories set in the 50s. And that was intended to be the first anthology that was going to come out. But then one of my favorite websites that I often go on for inspiration, the Atlas Obscura, um, came out with an article talking about um, she is known as the spook spy. Her name is Rose Mackenberg. And back in the 20s, she worked directly for Harry Houdini to go out to different spiritualists and see whether or not they were really what they said they were. Um, yes. She was known as the Rev, the Spook Spy, and I think she had uh, the Woman of a Thousand Faces. Yes. Because she became so famous that spiritualists knew her on site, so she had to gain um, a talent um, for costuming and she is very, very talented at that. Uh, I'm sure if you look her up online, there is a um, pretty famous um, picture from an article of a handful of Rose Mackenberg's different disguises that she uses to go into seances. Yes. Um, so what, the more I read about her, the more I just fell in love with her, and the more I really, really wanted to see... Um, more stories like that. The 20s has always been one of my favorite historical eras. And since I already had that idea about sock hops and, and seances, then I came to you and went, hey, I have another idea for a title with alliteration. How about we do speakeasies and spiritualists? <laughs> and we jumped on it. Yes. But and yes, this sounds like such a fun idea, and I'm excited to see how it turns out um, with submissions closed. But it, yes. it sounded so much fun. I was like, oh. I haven't looked yeah. at all of the submissions quite yet, but the ones I have looked at, I've actually really enjoyed, and I think this is going to be another really good collection. Oh, yes, I'm very excited. I've only read three or four of them so far, and they're really solid. Despite most authors doing a last-minute rush in the last couple hours. I think this was the most um, last-minute submissions that I've gotten for any of the anthologies that I've done. Oh, yeah, we got 15 or more in the last five hours. Yes. But, uh, yes, it, this should be a fun collection, so keep an eye here at 18th Wall and yeah. here on the TVCU because I'm sure someone is going to shamelessly plug this down the road when it does come out. So, just keep an ear out. Now, let's move into one last topic. You are a series editor at 18th Wall Productions. Now, if anyone listening to this gets the idea in their head, I would really love to work with her. This sounds fantastic. I love everything she's done. 
I'm going to submit a series. You should. She's wonderful. <laughs> what sorts of things are you interested in, and what hazards should they avoid? I'm interested in pretty much anything that is... Uh, I hate to, so- to sound cliche, but unique. And... Um, I don't necessarily mean that it has to be something that's never been done before because there is nothing new under the sun. But I like seeing things that take slightly different directions than what we're used to or seeing things that I look at and go, wow, we don't have a lot of that out on the market right now. Um, let's see. I have... I guess I could talk about my tastes in um, fiction in general. That would probably help anyone who's interested. I very, I I, I definitely love um, classic Doctor Who, uh, particularly the Seventh Doctor era. So anything that captures that kind of feel is pretty much guaranteed to worm its way into my heart. Uh, (laughs) Pretty much immediately. And uh, as we reference it so often while talking um, on here, Big Finish, um, their audio dramas, especially their classic Who audio dramas, are something I very, very much love. And they have a really interesting way of taking these really, really unique ideas and spinning them in really interesting ways, like their concept of the word lord Uh, a villain who manipulates things through the power of the written word and also speech. I always really liked that idea of a villain. Um, Rudyard Kipling has again been a really big inspiration to me as well as Timothy Zahn's work. Um, I have a really big soft spot for dragons. If there's there's a dragon anywhere in your story, I just, I have to look at it. Because I just really love dragons, okay? Uh, I'm a sucker for the 20s, the 60s, and um, the Wild West. If you set your story in any of those periods, I am all over it. Um... Just Put a disclaimer on doing a historical. She loves those periods, so she's going to catch it if you slip up. So be careful going into a historical. Yes, it, it would be better if you were if you do write what you know. Um, and I think too, one of the most important things to me that I look at in stories is whether or not the characters are compelling. I have to really, really like your characters to be interested in your story. Plot, I don't pay as much attention to, despite the fact that I do love a really good plot. What I really, really want is a character that I find fascinating, interesting. I don't have to like them, and I got into an argument one time in college about that. Um... I had a professor who believed that protagonists had to be likable in order for a story to be read. And I argued that that wasn't the case. I don't have to like the character. I just have to be interested enough to keep reading about them. Yes. 
Um, I would also say another important thing that you really like to mention would be Agent Carter. Yes. <laughs> um, if we could get more characters like Peggy Carter in the world, I think just everything would be much better. Yes. It would be so much better. And I'm still and upset it, that that's not coming back. Marvel. I'm never going to forgive them for keeping Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. but getting rid of Agent Carter. Yeah, no. Oh. Exactly. But then that's ABC for you. No idea what's good and has a future and what's bad and is struggling. Yeah. Yep. So, yes, those are the characters you should look out for. Agent Carter's and Ace. Yes. Lots of Ace. Oh, anything with with an Ace-like character in it. I just... I have to, like... I'm compelled to, like, characters that even somewhat resemble Ace. But, yes, and if you're wondering who is Ace, we will refer you right now to BigFinish.com. Go... Find any seventh doctor, um, an ace, listen, go grab the DVDs. You need ace if you do not know who ace is. There's our shameless plug again. We should be on big finish for commission at this point, guys. Probably. Nicholas Briggs, please come on our show. We love yes. you. <laughs> if you're listening, yes, we would love to chat with you. It's an open invitation. We beg you. <laughs> That's that all right, I'm going to segue us out of the desperate plea for Briggs, but <laughs> once again, you're welcome anytime, Nicholas Briggs. Um, Nicole, please tell us where we can find you on social media. Oh, me and social media, the, the grandma with computers. Well, I do actually have a Facebook page that I sometimes update when I remember that it exists, and I believe you can just find it as currently it's um, Nicole Petit Official. I have a dragon on as my main picture. I, I I'm not that hard to find. There you go. And actually, readers, if you want to go to my page, I actually tagged her in a status the other day, so you can find it. Um, other day from when we're recording, so you can go find it on my page as well, and it'll take you right to hers because I think she's awesome and needed a shout out. Uh, awesome. And one last question: Is there anything you want to talk about that we haven't covered? I mean, I can always talk more about dragons or the fact that the Victorian era, just people don't get the Victorian era right, and that really upsets me. I mean, I could do that, but we I also... We have five minutes. Let's talk it. about the Victorian era. Let's give our listeners a crash course in why they're wrong. This is why I didn't do the Victorian era for my home story, ladies and gentlemen, as they get started. <laughs> in five minutes, how do we cover what's wrong about how people view the Victorian era? We should How probably about we start with the table legs myth? Yes, let's start with the table legs myth. Everyone's favorite thing to bring up, and I once shut down a professor who brought up this story, is that the Victorian era was so prudish that they covered table legs because, I don't know, I guess it reminds people of sex or something. This is not true. This didn't happen. This was a joke, and it wasn't even aimed at Victorian England it was a joke a British guy made about the Americas at the same time period. Yes. 
Yes, and those English women were so scandalous, smoking, riding on their bicycles. Riding bicycles. There were newspaper articles about women riding bicycles and how... This was in in America. America. This was the sign of the downfall of society, because obviously once women start riding bicycles, I mean, what else is is in store for us. I mean, they'll start smoking and they'll probably all become lesbians, which to me sounds like a grand old time to be quite honest. (laughs) And we should also mention your lovely professor's idea about radio and the Victorian scientist. That was my other professor for science fiction who had decided that if you took a Victorian inventor scientist, just one of the greatest minds of the Victorian era and introduced them to a radio that they would think it's black magic. Which is stunning because it's not even like he picked the internet. He picked something that was a legitimate Victorian invention. I was getting ready to say, hold up. (laughs) I was doing my little mental history lesson there. (laughs) Just also remind people I'm still here. Keep going. Oh, I mean, I always love griping about how people think that Victorian women didn't have much agency at the time, which I'm not saying that it was the most progressive society in the history of the universe, um, but Victorian women were doing chemistry in their homes as a hobby. Yes. They they had a lot more agency than we tend to give them credit for. People tend to look at corsets and, uh, well, I don't know what else. I usually hear people complain about corsets and table legs and decide from it. that that women were oppressed. It's not true, guys. Not true. Especially since no one wore corsets that tight. That was oh. a French fad decades earlier. And... Oh, the French. Everyone thought the French were crazy. So, you know. Yes. Those crazy, crazy French. Everything they did in that era is objectively insane. It's France. Of course it's insane. They decided to take the really fun Haunted Mansion ride that we have over here in Disney and make it some sort of really tragic romance. What? Like a serial killer or something. Yes. That really is what happened. That's really what they did to the Haunted Mansion. And then they took, um, no, who's the voice that they had? And they Vincent didn't make Price. it the ghost. They had Vincent Price, and he isn't the ghost host. I think France is just objectively wrong on a lot of levels. Yes. Oh, France. Especially since they did that after Japan got Vincent Price to be the ghost host. See, Japan knows what's up. Japan knows how to make a haunted mansion. Yes. France doesn't. In my extremely biased opinion. Because we all know you you love the haunted mansion. We What did we read it? Twice? And I think we were going to go a third at one point when we visited Disney World. No, we yeah. went three and we're going to go a fourth. Oh, we did we go with three? Because I only remember yep. two. We went three. I only recall two. We did two of them back to back, though. Did we? I know, I know we hit from the thunderstorm um, and did one, which I thought was a perfectly good use of our time in the middle of a thunderstorm. 
I mean, my uh, rule going to Disney is that we go on the Haunted Mansion and we go see the Country Bear Jamboree. Yes, those it are is. The things that really matter. Yes. I don't care about anything else. The Country Bears are very important to me. Yes. I love how we've um, just segued from the Victorian era to Disney World because this is perfectly good discussion, but I can't say much because my priority was Cinderella's Castle. Fireworks. These are my two Space Mountain. masterful places. Like These are my two things that I can actually discuss and sound somewhat intelligent on. The Victorian era and Disney World? Yes. Those are my two subjects. I know. I gotta add a third one, Nikki. Dragons. I can talk about dragons. I can. There's do a that. third one. Yes, and I would also say editing. I mean, you've carried this whole podcast. You have. That is from my many classes in improv, improv comedy. Right there, my acting classes in improv comedy. Gotcha. Uh, all right, Nicole, I think we're actually going to need to bring this to a close and we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. Well, that's all there is. There isn't any more. Join us next week when we talk to T. Casey Brennan, famous Warren Comics author about black and white comics, Creepy Magazine and MK Ultra's Mind Control. Also joining us next episode is guest host Micah S. Harris. And a little bit about me, as you notice, I'm reading the intro and exit. Well, this fifth Beatles is officially becoming Ringo. And from now on, you'll be hearing a lot more of me here on the TVCU podcast. I want to take a second and thank Nicole again for being such a great first guest as I become more a more official member of the TVCU crew. Before we end, I want to thank our sponsor, the Strategic Scientific Reserve. And as always, we want to give a very special thanks to Robert E. Bronsky Jr. for starting us on this journey as well as Tiny White and the Dead Eyes for our show's theme, Leaf on a Stream. Thank you guys for listening. You make all this possible. And remember to subscribe and rate our show on iTunes. It makes all the difference. As always, everything happens somewhere. Have a good night.